If you think you need expensive GPUs to get started with artificial intelligence, then think again. Use your existing Intel Xeon processors on Dell PowerEdge servers to get started today, with exciting AI use cases from finance to healthcare and more. Dell EMC and Intel are proud to sponsor the AI thought leaders on the Voices in AI podcast. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today, I am so excited. My guest is Dr. Kai Bu Lee. He is, of course, an AI expert. He is the CEO of Cinovation Ventures. He is the former president of Google China, and he is the author of a fantastic new book called AI Superpowers. Welcome to the show, Dr. Lee. Uh, thank you, Byron. I'd love to begin by AI is, is one of those things that can mean so many things. And so for the purpose of this conversation, what are we talking about when we talk about AI? Uh, we're talking about the advances in machine learning, uh, in particular deep learning and, and related technologies as it applies to artificial narrow intelligence with uh, a lot of opportunities for implementation, application, and value extraction. We're not talking about artificial general intelligence, which I think is still uh, a long ways out. So combining ourselves to narrow intelligence, if someone were to ask you worldwide, not even getting into all the political issues, what is the state of the art right now? How would you describe where we are at as a planet with narrow artificial intelligence? Uh, I, I think we're at the point of um, readiness for application. I think the greatest opportunities is application of what's already known. Um, if we look around us, we see very few of the um, companies, enterprises, industries using AI when they all really should be. Uh, internet companies use AI a lot, but uh, it's really just beginning to enter uh, financial, manufacturing, retail, ho hospitals, healthcare, uh, schools, education, and so on. It should impact everything, and it has, has not. So I think what's being invented and how it gets applied, implemented, monetized, um, value creation, that is a very, very clear, 100% certain opportunity we should embrace. Now, there can be more innovations, you know, inventions, breakthroughs, but even without those, I think we've got so much on our hands that's not yet been fully um, um, valued and uh, implemented into industries. I tweeted once, and it's a really arbitrary tweet, I said that if all R&D related to AI just stopped today, it might take us 10 or 15 years just to fully implement what we know everywhere it can be applied. Uh, again, that can't ever be proven one way or the other, but does that feel like a reasonably accurate statement to you? Absolutely. It sounds almost exactly like what I would say. So I guess we fully agree. So if, if I went back 25 years to 1993, uh, that's when the Mosaic browser came out. And in the 25 years that we've had the internet, which let's be clear, that's a technology that only allows computers to talk to each other. Like they don't think or anything, they just talk to each other. Right. That's created something on the order of $25 trillion in wealth, a million new businesses. If you were to, to say, okay, what will 25 years of AI get us? With that data point as a reference, is that going to be massively bigger than what the internet gave us? Or is it like another internet or two? Or do you just have any gut level of 
what how big of a thing we're talking about? Uh, I do. I think it'll be a, a, a multiple of what internet has brought us. In fact, both McKinsey and uh, PwC have done studies that in about 12 years, AI will bring, bring about 12 to seven, uh, $17 trillion in value. So if we add that to 25 years, it ought to be a few times of the internet if we believe in the PwC and McKinsey studies. And the gut feel is right because um, not everyone has to embrace the internet. I know most, almost every, everyone we know does, but the whole world is not fully penetrated. But AI truly could go into the tech businesses as well as very, very traditional businesses including you know, agriculture, manufacturing, and so on. So the, I think the reach is bigger in terms of industries. Um, but also, I think internet was a great thing. So I think I'll say a few times of the internet based on the technologies that are known and natural extensions thereof. If there are bigger breakthroughs, let's say if AGI actually gets invented, I think it'll be much, much, much larger than that. But I don't, I don't place uh, high odds on that. So, machine learning, you know, is really a simple idea. It says, let's take a bunch of data about the past, let's study it and make projections into the future. And, and man, man, when you say it like that, it sure doesn't sound like such a big deal. But of course, it is kind of a big deal. But where do you think that methodology really works well and where does it not? And I ask the question because the central assumption behind machine learning is that the future is like the past. And that works for identifying a cat, which a cat tomorrow looks like a cat today, but it may not work for other kinds of problems. It may not, for instance, be able to predict, you know, what I'm going to say next, or it may not be able to, to, to come up with anything that's creative or anything like that. So where in your mind does that simple idea of machine learning work well and where does it not really work well? Uh, well, it has a number of constraints, so it works well when it's in a single domain and a large amount of data can be gathered and that uh, they can also be tagged and labeled with the proper prediction or decision or outcome and that new data that emerges are fit into the same category of the data that we've seen. So that would basically say that a lot of the quantitative uh, work that was uh, fabricated by humanity, you know, uh, banking, insurance, um, uh, stock market, investment, those numeric tasks obviously do fit. Um, internet obviously doesn't. Um, I also think a lot of the jobs that are done routinely to process numbers or data or text also fits. And as it extends into robotics and with the ability of uh, computer vision, computer speech, and the ability of movement and manipulation, I think a lot of the routine jobs that are blue-collar in nature would also fit. So it fits a pretty large number of things that happen in the world. Uh, probably more than half the tasks that we do are quantitative-based um, decision, are objective decision-based um, and uh, based on relatively routine, repeatable, predictable kinds of uh, outcomes and uh, forecasts. The things that don't fit would be things that are more abstract, uh, things like creativity, uh, things like strategy, uh, concepts, 
cross-domain thinking, common sense, intuition, uh, um, self-awareness, emotion. Those are the things that uh, don't fit. Well, you know, I really would love to explore your 50% number because I, I'll confess to you, I see things a little different than that. Um, and so let's, let's try to get at the bottom of that. I'll, I'll set the problem up by saying um, there was a fantastic study that came out of Oxford a few years ago, uh, Frey and Osborne, and they came up to a conclusion which was, I think, uh, routinely misrepresented. Um, what it was reported as 47% of jobs can be automated away. If you, if you read what they wrote in that report, uh, they go out of their way to say, we are not making any predictions about how many jobs are going to be lost. What they actually said was 47% of things people do in their jobs can be automated. Right. And that's not particularly interesting. I mean, that's not particularly surprising. You know, my father has sold insurance for 30 years and over the course of his 30 year career, a whole lot more than 47% of what he did got automated, but he still had a job. Now the OECD did a study and said, what, what percentage of actual jobs can be eliminated by this technology? And they came up with 9%. Right. And, and I have a, a big survey on my website where I ask people to score jobs on these different markers. And I have a hard time finding any jobs. I don't, I don't want to say none, but I find so few. Because when you start going through them and you say, okay, what about a plumber? Well, a plumber's got to come into your house and look around or an electrician. Or you come up with any job that requires motion or mobility, you come up with any job that requires empathy, any job that requires creativity, any job two people would do differently uh, from each other. I mean, the range of jobs like this one simple technology can do seems really small to me. So I would love to, to give you the, the microphone and have you really kind of teach us what you're thinking about with that 50% number. Uh, certainly. Yeah, I think at the roots, it comes back to the uh, Oxford study, and other people have challenged the study by saying uh, it's not the job itself, but the tasks with displacement. And the tasks also come to uh, around 50%, if not higher. That's in the McKinsey study. So the question now is, if the, if the tasks can be automated, uh, would they lead to an equivalent number of um, uh, job displacements? which I, in my book, I'm also cautious to say that I'm talking about technically capability as opposed to actual employment, because those are, there are actually a lot of things that um, uh, depend uh, on not, not only the items you mentioned, um, but also things like um, employer uh, relationship, employee loyalty, pension, um, labor unions, uh, regulations, and social security, and so on and so forth. But let's just come to how many jobs might, might be um, uh, impacted. Um, I would stay, still stay with the higher number for the following set of reasons. Uh, first, um, if you displace half of the tasks in a job, uh, arguably the pool of workers ought to be shrunk so that um, the people would do the jobs that machines can't do. So, well, but let me let me put a pin in that right now. Okay. That historically hasn't been the case, has it? I mean, like when we came out with the ATM machine, which uh -huh. did a lot of what a teller did, you would assume there would need to be less tellers or actually need to be more tellers because lowering the cost of that to zero, open more bank branches, needed more tellers. Google Translate can translate a document as well as a human. The need for translators is actually exploding because when you lower the cost of, of an email to zero to translating that, you still need a real translator to do a contract, to do a face-to-face -face meeting, to do 
the risk. So isn't it the case that throughout history, when technology lowers the cost of something, some aspect of a job to zero, that increases demand for that and, and increases the number of people who need to do that? Well, uh, for the case of Translate, I think it's a temporary phenomenon because technology is currently imperfect. I would predict in five years, technologies would be so good that the amount of uh, the number of people would come down again. The same applies for truckers. There are more truckers needed now because of the booming e-commerce. But, but when autonomous vehicle takes over, that will come down. Tellers is an interesting one. Uh, I would bet tellers are largely gone in 10 years. Um, because I, I think while there were more branches, I think people are now seeing banks are extracting an unreasonable fee and um, uh, the services they provide are better provided by fully uh, automated systems. So let me give you an exact example. You know, we fund a company that does loans by apps and it's just an app you download and you instantly get about $1,000 um, sent directly to your phone. This is in China with mobile payment. So that does not do the job of a teller. It's not a one-to-one -one displacement. Uh, or, I'm sorry, loan, uh, in this case, more like a loan officer. But to the extent that such, such apps become pervasive, the industry gets displaced, and there would be no more loan officers left if they're fully displaced. Uh, another example is uh, we're investing in autonomous, um, autonomous fast food restaurants. Uh, while McDonald's is not hiring a robot to displace each cashier or hamburger flipper, um, these new autonomous um, fast food offer equal quality food at one-third to one-half the price. So to the extent that these autonomous fast food restaurants take over, um, then the jobs of McDonald's and Kentucky Fried Chicken will still shrink. So I think my first argument was that um, when a large number of tasks are replaced within the pool, uh, the number of people needed to do the job uh, would, would, should shrink, um, especially, especially because the number, the percentage will go up over time. If you take a paralegal, maybe it's 10% doable by AI today, maybe 50% in 10 years, maybe 80% in 15 years. And over, as the AI takes more and more, um, uh, it, it, it would uh, shrink the, the pool of workers needed um, for, for that job. The second point is the disruption. Um, it's not a one-to-one -one displacement, but a whole industry with a whole brand new way of doing things, causing all of the old jobs to, uh, to go away. Um, the third is that AI is specialized at doing routine jobs, and that we actually have a large number of routine jobs in the economy. A plumber is, I would argue, is an exception, because that requires mobility, human interaction, and dealing with all kinds of um, uh, different dated types of um, plumbing. Whereas uh, more of the blue collar work are in a single place, like an assembly line worker, a dishwasher, a food picker, that requires a lot less of the other skills. And I think we should do an inventory of how many, um, are there more plumbers or are there more assembly line worker types of people? And, and I think that we'll find, I think the latter will be larger. The last reason I will give is that this technology revolution is a dual engine. That is, both US and China are making amazing progress. Whereas before, the whole world depended on US uh, coming up with uh, solutions for, for uh, AI or for technology, or, uh, sorry, for internet and PC and software and mobile. 
Now there are two engines, so there should be faster progress. But having said all that, I'm not predicting a 50% unemployment. I'm just saying 50% um, of the tasks will clearly be doable for much less money. And many of the people have jobs that large percentage of their jobs would be displaced. Um, that plus the other reasons ought to lead to a larger percentage of um, job displacement than 9%. Um, but will it be 40, 50%? I think, uh, you know, uh, time will tell. There are so many factors. I'm not an economist, so I can't, can't go there. So you, of course, make a compelling case, but just just to look at some of what you said, the number of translators, I would argue, even if, as it gets better, will continue to go up. Because if you take the premise that the technology is going to enable international commerce across language, then all of a sudden you need localization. You need people who are actually in that country uh, Full time, you need people who are uh, conversant in the in the customs of that country. I mean, there's so many things that happen that need translators suddenly. And and if you look at the Frey and Osborne study of the kinds of jobs that were listed, and even the jobs that you just listed, you can't possibly think we're going to build a machine to be, for instance, a dishwasher, which you mentioned. Like we are so far away from something that could do something as simple as picking up dishes and holding them and then putting them in. A, I mean. We're like so far away from that. And, and Frey and Osborne had things like waitress and uh, a, line, a short item cook and pharmacy assistants. Like th that was one of their 98% jobs. Like we're not going to need pharmacy assistants? No. I think what we would say is they're going to do different things, but that doesn't mean pharmacies won't have assistants. Well, I think the Frey and Osborne, um, if you look in the detail, some of the higher and lower numbers are certainly debatable. I, I, I find examples I disagree with also. Um, but actually, technology is progressing very fast. I, I gave you the example of a loan officer, which would be thought of generally as a sort of a higher level job in the society. Um, and we can go as high as a radiologist, right? I'm not sure. I don't think Frey and Osborne, at the time they wrote the paper, deep learning hadn't even come out. So 47% is probably an underestimate because at that time they were probably thinking radiologists, there's no way to displace them. Uh, I remember two years ago, I talked about radiology as something machines would do better than humans one day in the not too distant future. And many uh, people in the medical domain disagree with me. But this year in the uh, global radiologist conference, hottest topics was when will their jobs be gone? So this progression is a lot faster uh, even in the example you gave, dishwasher, we're actually an investor in a company called Dishcraft that is building a robotic dishwasher. It's not doing, I think you're talking about, you know, building nimble fingers that can handle dishes the way a human does, but that isn't the way to come out. It'll be a, just a giant machine. The goal is to getting the dishes clean, uh, is not to create finger-like um, manipulation. So actually, Fair enough. We'll so let's... let's Let's put a pin in that and say uh, some number of jobs are going to vanish. Does that in your mind, whether it's 10% or 50%, does that in your mind imply we will have some increase in unemployment? I think it doesn't have to be. So I'm actually an optimist. But my, my point in my book um, is that uh, we need to start. AI will not create enough jobs to take over the jobs that may be displaced, whether it's, I don't think it can possibly be 10%, I would put it maybe 20 to 45% in, 
in the next 15 years or something like that. Uh, that is a larger rate than any technology has displaced in the past. And AI will probably, over time, create equal number or larger number of jobs if we give it enough time. But because this 15 years is very, very short, you know, electricity, industrial revolution, they took much longer. So I'm with most people that technology ultimately will create jobs that we haven't seen before, and everything will balance out. But that's only if the technology revolution takes, you know, 25 years as internet did, or hundreds of years as electrical and uh, industrial revolution and steam engine did. So it's a lot faster. So uh, in the book, I talk about, uh, I also think even if, um, as I predict, AI will not create enough jobs, then it's up to us humans to create those jobs. And I think those jobs actually do exist. So um, I, I'm, I am an optimist that uh, a lot of jobs, especially service, empathy, compassion-related jobs, currently are vacant in the society because they don't pay enough, because their social status is not high enough. And I think we need to consciously shift that, and that if we do, I, I do agree that eventually everything will be okay. So let's look at the internet as an example of this. So if you had gone back 25 years, and um, well, you were studying, uh, you were studying artificial intelligence before that. So we're going to use you as our as our incredibly smart, forward-looking person. And so 1993, I go back to Dr. Lee and I say, uh, Dr. Lee, in 25 years, this technology is going to have billions of users. What jobs do you think will be lost? And you may have said, well, um, stockbrokers and travel agents and uh, probably be newspaper jobs lost because people will read online and postal jobs lost because of email. And there'll probably be less yellow pages because people will advertise online. And there'll be less retail jobs because people will buy online. And you would have been right about everything. But of course, what nobody could have seen was, you know, eBay, Etsy, Baidu, Amazon, Google, Airbnb, you know, a million new companies, literally trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars worth of wealth. So do you believe that as the internet has progressed over the last 25 years and has eliminated certain jobs, it has created jobs at a slower pace or it has created jobs in excess of what it was destroying as it did it in real time? Uh, I actually think internet has um, created an equal or maybe even larger number of jobs than it uh, displaced. Um, I think the examples you gave are great. Those are exactly the categories that came down. But then there are the website designers, the people who involve selling things on eBay, things that people started to do e-commerce and so on and so forth, I think it probably created more jobs. The difference between internet and AI are twofold. Uh, one, uh, the, the major difference is AI is basically um, designed to displace routine jobs at the, at the bottom of the corporate hierarchy. Uh, internet is not. Internet is a connection tool which will, will create jobs and destroy jobs as it kind of... Um, changes industry look. And because AI is basically, you can, you're built where, I mean, people are not building, you know, the, with the internet, people weren't using internet technologies to build um, uh, you know, uh, entry-level routine jobs. But with AI, people are. And, you know, we were investing in companies that are, are doing essentially uh, customer service, um, 
Hello Marketing, Dishwashing, Fruit Picking, Loan Officers, um, Fast Food Restaurant Workers, um, Cashiers. So we're actually seeing um, machines or software that are exactly designed to displace jobs, which was what prompted me to write the book. So I think that is the one big difference. It's kind of a natural technology for job displacement. The other thing is that AI will come about faster because a lot of these job displacements don't require any infrastructure building. In order for eBay to take a bunch of sales off of um, you know, Walmart or whatever, uh, it takes time for people to shift their habits. It takes time for the mail services operation to improve. But AI basically just plug it into the cloud and the job is done. So uh, AI displacement and AI revolution will be faster. So basically two differences. One is um, larger numbers of directly targeted routine jobs. And the second is the faster integration. What I find interesting, however, is that, and I'm just talking about the United States at this point because it's the only thing I know the, the numbers off the top of my head. In the last 250 years in this country, unemployment has been between 5 and 10%. It never has varied other than the Great Depression, which was kind of a special case unrelated to technology. So you have 5 to 10% unemployment for 250 years. Right. Meanwhile, I've taken a lot of time to try to figure out the half-life of a job. And I believe the half-life of a job is about 50 years. I believe every half century, half of all jobs vanish. It might be a little less. It might be 45 years. But for, for 250 years, half the jobs go away every 50 years. And what's interesting is that we've maintained full employment. And I, and I know you're, you're talking about a faster pace, so I understand that. But we've maintained full employment for, 50 year, for 250 years, losing half the jobs all the time. And I, I point out, we've maintained full employment and rising wages against that backdrop. Now, to me, what's interesting is that when a new technology comes out, and I'm not sure that, that AI is actually being adopted faster, and let, let, me, let me justify that, uh, and the United States went from generating 5% of its power with steam to 95% in 22 years. So in 22 years, we changed how all power is generated. Millions of draft animals, all the infrastructure that supported them, all the animal power in the world was obsoleted, all of it in, the, in this country in 22 years. The electrification of industry, so that's the replacement of steam with electricity, happened, depends on how you want to measure it, maybe seven years. Now, what's interesting to me, and you can debate whether AI is going to be faster or slower, what's interesting to me is when you look at unemployment numbers, you cannot see those technological, uh, those technological revolutions, you cannot see them in the unemployment numbers. I could, I could show you the unemployment rate for 250 years and say, now guess where Guess where the replacement of steam power, uh, the replacement of animal power of steam happened? Guess where electricity happened? And by looking at unemployment. So I would argue that no matter how fast it happens, people just take new technology instantly and increase productivity. And there's never even a blip in unemployment. What do you say to that? Well, um, I just gave you seven categories of jobs that we as one small VC in one country are looking at displacing and we're seeing higher performance by the technologies. And I, I don't think electricity to steam or steam, I'm sorry, steam to electricity were aimed at displacing individual jobs. 
And, and these jobs are basically displaced and there no, no new ones are needed. When you don't have cashiers anymore, it's not like you create a category of, you know, super cashiers or, in, or uh, you know, AI cashiers. They're, they're just gone. And, and when you displace customer service, they're just gone. And these seven categories I gave you are probably easily 150 million jobs in the world. And, and it's a complete displacement. So that is the scale and an approach that hasn't been seen before. And again, coming back to agreeing with your longer term view, is that I certainly do believe AI will create a lot of jobs, jobs that we definitely cannot name today. But I don't see that pace of job creation keeping up with the job displacement. Well, that's my, that's my real question is if you can't see a blip, I understand all the, all the ways you're saying is different. My question is because just because you kind of run the engine faster and you advance the technology faster and you eliminate jobs faster, don't you think that has the corollary that it creates the jobs faster as well? Because there's just so many more economic opportunities all of a sudden. So many more entrepreneurs start so many different kinds of companies and, and hire those same exact people. Like, why do you believe that the, the job destruction engine runs faster than the job creation engine in this case? Well, just because, just because you're, you're saying, well, when you eliminate that cashier, there's not some new instant job, but there, there's some unintended job you can't even imagine that's instantly created as well, isn't there? Uh, there could be. Uh, I mean, when you went from steam to electricity, you can almost name for every you know, steam operator, you have an electricity operator, even though the jobs are different, the training's different. It's sort of, uh, you, you, some go away and some come along, and, and it's, you can almost imagine that even if you couldn't name the exact job. We're at a position where I can't at all tell you what are the 150 million jobs that would come when these 150 million are gone? So that makes me concerned, and I think we could be prepared. But it's, it, it's to be expected. We couldn't have seen eBay or Etsy or, or Airbnb or Baidu or Alibaba or any of those jobs 25 years ago, right? Uh, that's right. But, I okay. think, so we, but, right. They, but the jobs were not directly targeted and displaced in the case of Internet. The internet is creating a new, weaving a new thing that caused a gradual shift of people's buying patterns. And then, and then I think you can almost, you can almost say uh, for every non-internet um, sale that took place, now there's an internet sales that takes place. Therefore, there needs to be a human behind it. Therefore, there will be jobs created. I think I can make, a, 25 years ago, I could give you a logical explanation why jobs will be uh, changed but not gone. But now I can't because jobs that have been had for you know 250 years, right? Customer service reps have been around for 250 years. Telemarketing agents have been around. Fruit pickers have been around for thousands of years. And, and, and overnight, they're just all gone. So I think you can be optimistic and say more will be created. Uh, in the longer term, I believe it. But it, so, so I think we're basically agreeing to disagree on this issue. But let's just say for the moment you're right and that lots of jobs are created. Then I will tell you there's a gigantic training problem because we're displacing uh, the, a set of workers who have the uh, lowest education, least amount of training, and uh, most unskilled. That's what AI is targeting. And whatever jobs are created by AI, 
the skill sets are not going to so easily match. I think for sure the retraining process will be tougher, longer, costlier, if at all possible. So even if you write the match of the, you know, let's say 30% people are displaced, and let's say you're right, 30% jobs are in fact instantly created, but those might be data scientist jobs, you know, robot repair jobs. They're not if something a fruit picker and the dishwasher and the customer service rep can do. So I've never found that argument terribly compelling, to be candid, because I hear it like this. It says technology is great at creating awesome new jobs like geneticists, high paying, high skilled, but it destroys jobs like order taker at fast food. And then people say, do you really think that order taker is going to become a geneticist? And the answer is, well, no, of course not. A college biology professor becomes a geneticist, then a high school biology teacher gets the college job, then the substitute teacher gets hired on at the high school, all the way down the line. The question is not, can that person who's displaced do that new job? The question is, can everybody do a job a little harder than the job they have today? And that's 250 years of, of, of what I think's happened, which is technology creates great new jobs, destroys bad jobs, and everybody shifts up just one notch. So it doesn't require some massive retraining of unskilled workers to be data scientists. Oh, I certainly disagree with that. Um, I think, you know, you describe a utopian um, escalation where everybody steps up and up. But we're talking about uh, a world where there's already a giant um, increase of inequality. Uh, I mean, over the past 30 years, we're seeing wealth inequality, education inequality. And the reason there's so much nationalism and happiness all over the world is that the haves and have-nots have increased a lot. And what we're about to do is to take uh, the have-nots, the most have-nots of the have-nots, and take away their jobs. And then I think that, let's just say 25% or 30% of the most have-nots of the have-nots, to have them enter a career ladder that's gradually shifting everybody one notch, if um, the uh, physics just don't work. All right. Fair enough. I mean, I would argue that anytime you can increase human productivity, you're going to increase wages. It will always happen. Well, give us time. Give it time, right? Give us 30, 40, 50 years. It might work. But Mm -hmm. AI is coming in 10 or 15. So we come back. So you make a very compelling case, Dr. Lee. So do you. (laughs) So I think think maybe this kind of embodies the conversation that a lot of people have and in Silicon Valley, and, and I, I, will, I will give you the last word there on it because... Um, well, I will say this is one of the best conversations I've had. I think your ideas are very thoughtful. We certainly don't agree on many things, but I think it's a very good discussion. And, and Well, thank you. And I guess, okay, I'll say one more thing, and then I really will give you the last word. Yeah. Is it the case, really? So unemployment, I mean, uh, inequality is going up, certainly. Uh, isn't it the case that inequality is going up because it's now easier to make a billion dollars than ever before. In other words, if you look at the number of billionaires in the world who made their own money, it's higher than it's ever been. Google minted seven billionaires, Facebook minted eight. So all of a sudden, it's easier for people, not me, unfortunately, to make a billion dollars than ever before. And that mathematically increases inequality. But is that really the thing people should worry about? Shouldn't we instead say, what is the plight of the bottom 20%. Are they getting wealthier? Are they getting poorer? Do these technologies help them by increasing their productivity? Or do these technologies somehow hurt them? And 
And I, I guess I think when you, when you deflect and say, well, inequality is going up, that's different than saying poor people are worse off today than they were before. So do you think that, that, that a bottom 20% person in China or in the United States is worse off than they were 20 years ago? Oh, of course not. They're better off. But people's psyche is that they're not, not just comparing their absolute um, material wealth or how they have gone in the last 20 years, they're comparing with other people. So, I mean, I wish people could just look at their own, but I think it's, it's demonstrated in psychology that uh, people are very concerned about uh, more inequality, raises social instability, uh, creates more unhappiness, causes things like um, you know, unusual election results that we have seen. Um, so I think those... Those, there, are, there, are, there are two sets of issues that are not, they're both independently correct, but the issue still, still remains. And, and I think, you know, in the end, I don't want to be viewed as a, a total dystopian or mess, uh, ne- negative viewer, because actually, you've read my book, you know that I have an optimistic ending. And Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I think that 25 or 30% job displacement, if efforts were put in for retraining, I do believe there are enough interesting, useful, economically valuable, and socially valuable jobs, in particular uh, jobs that relate to empathy, compassion, uh, caring for the elders, uh, nurses, nannies, um, even the future teachers and doctors uh, will be large enough categories to absorb the people who are displaced. And uh, if we put the training in place and make sure that new jobs are paid fairly, and have a decent social status. So I, I do have an optimistic, optimistic uh, final uh, outcome as well, even though I see uh, a lot of chaos in the process. So let's switch and talk about one of the, the thesis of your book. I mean, it's called AI Superpowers, the plural, for which we'll discuss in a moment. I've avoided asking you philosophical questions about artificial intelligence because what I have discerned from reading your book is you're a practical man interested in the practical ways these technologies yeah. help people and so forth. I'm just going to ask you one though, because you mentioned uh, that the the AlphaGo and Lisa Dole uh, Go match was this watershed event in China where where people were like, "Whoa, that's amazing!" So, and I specifically want to r- draw your memory back to Move 37, uh, where you know that was the moment that AlphaGo made a move that the the deep mind people said there was only one in 10,000 chance a human would have made that move. And even Lisa Dole later was saying that move was, you know, I don't remember his exact words, but he was, he was so gracious and so generous. And he said that move was uh, divine, I think was what he said. And so my, that was the moment that people said, talked about AlphaGo being creative. Do you believe move 37 or AlphaGo in general is creative? Uh, I do not because I have a high bar on creativity. Um, I, I think creativity is about really, you know, the next Picasso or inventing the next um, cure for cancer. So, or, um, you know, inventing the next theory in, in physics. So, at least uh, AlphaGo was, has a human set function in an artificial domain in which it was able to uh, smartly search the space and come up with things people haven't come up with before. So I do understand if someone has a low bar on the word creativity, right? Anything that, if anything novel is called creative, 
then then I, then fine, you can call AlphaGo Creative, but I have a higher bar. So, give everyone, if you would, an overview of the most kind of novel aspect of your book, where you talk about how we're going to enter a world of, of two AI superpowers and how the Chinese view artificial intelligence different. Because you you're a, you're a man with a foot in both worlds. You've You've had education. You lived here for a long time in the United States. Obviously, uh, for obvious reasons, you are uniquely suited uh, to, to kind of be the definitive voice on the differences and similarities in these two worlds. Can, can you just take a moment and intrigue our listeners? Uh, absolutely. Uh, I think U.S. remains by far ahead of China in research, uh, in deep research, in technologies, in, in expertise. Uh, whether we measure by research paper H index, whether we measure by people who are really deep thinkers and, and brilliant uh, ideas people and people who might come up with the next breakthrough, U.S. is probably has probably about ten times more such people than China. So it's way ahead. However, China is a very unique country in the sense that it has the following four things. First, it has uh, an amazing set of entrepreneurs who are incredibly um, uh, tenacious, uh, incredibly hardworking, and uh, they're the epitome of lean startup and pivoting, and they will take um, uh, a, a, a real problem that people have and use every which way to solve it, including use AI and algorithms to optimize the results to lead to customer satisfaction or better revenue. So these entrepreneurs, I think generally, are faster to result, um, um, not, um, not as innovative as American entrepreneurs, but much faster to result, much result-oriented. And that's very suitable for iterating AI. The second thing is China is just full of data because AI gets better with data. Uh, China has uh, three to four times more users than the US, and each user actually uses the internet probably two to three times more than the American users. For example, ordering food, shared bicycle rides, and particularly payments. You know, all the Chinese payments are actually uh, done by software companies. So Chinese people carry no cash and uh, no credit cards, and payments go through the equivalent of uh, Facebook and um, uh, Amazon. So imagine, if you will, Facebook acquires Visa MasterCard, and Amazon acquires American Express, and they fully integrate everything into their engine. So much stronger predictability, as well as they, they pass on the, um, the AI and the data back to people who transact through them. So if I'm a convenience store owner of 100 stores and I use um, a pen, uh, WeChat Pay, uh, then I will actually know what customer bought what, essentially giving my offline store some online capabilities of being able to do predictions, product placement, sales forecast, and so on. So China has much more data, and that is a very, very key point. Um, the, th the third thing is uh, China actually has more capital. Uh, the total money invested in AI is larger than the U.S. starting 2017. And uh, that money fed into hungry, tenacious entrepreneurs will yield more results. And finally, of course, the Chinese government is very supportive in AI with a state council plan of 2030, uh, planning to be a, a world leader in AI technologies. 
And also uh, a lot of money has been spent on especially infrastructure where private capital cannot fund. So building highways and cities that are suitable for autonomous driving, and that will give China some edge. So I think um, the, the, the view of AI is very different. View it in China is very practical going into uh, not only internet, but, but finance, banking, insurance, manufacturing, uh, education, schools, uh, hospitals, and uh, retail, and applied um, uh, in much bigger and, 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 and the, in the deeper ways than U.S. So U.S. is a leader in research and technology, but China is running faster in implementation. Uh, from a results standpoint, China already has the world's most valuable companies in uh, speech recognition and synthesis, in computer vision, uh, in, uh, in, in drones. So it's already um, you know, building products that are equally good and, and creating monetization and valuation at uh, comparable levels uh, to the U.S. So why do you think it's still... In what sense is it useful to think of American AI and Chinese AI? I mean, isn't it really Google AI and Facebook AI and Baidu AI and Alibaba? Like, what is the nationalist component, as it were? Because these these countries are all, I mean, these companies are all multinational. They have employees everywhere. Like, why does it still have kind of a nationalist tint that, that, is, that makes sense to view it through? I, I think the media and the, maybe the governments uh, want to see that, but I certainly don't see it. Um, in fact, I see it as uh, parallel universes. You know, Chinese companies were funded by Chinese VCs and uh, they build products for Chinese people. So there is no zero-sum game. Um, you know, Amazon is a much bigger competitor to Google than uh, Baidu is. Right, and um, Google is a much competitive, bigger competitor to Facebook than uh, Tencent is. So the Chinese companies operate in a parallel universe. Their gain comes at each other, not at U.S. companies. So I would go further than what you said: is that um, there really should not be a discussion of a zero-sum game. Um, I think, in, in, in theory, in an abstract universe, I I would love to see American researchers teamed with Chinese implementers building products that can be used for the world with you know, half the money from U.S. and half from China and everybody makes money. Uh, I think that is the ideal combination, but I realize that's uh, uh, not very realistic given the current uh, trade situation. You know, I, I think that it's interesting to me that you can see how certain cultures develop a certain natural advantage in artificial intelligence. For instance, China leads the world in, in two things for very specific reasons. One is voice recognition, because the character set is so hard to type with on a mobile device, and facial recognition, because you have so many unbanked people in China that, as you were just saying, commerce has to be done securely. And so it has to have really good facial recognition to know that's who's holding the phone. And so it's really interesting to me that the culture, that particular country's culture or situation creates an environment where certain things naturally evolve. I've also noticed that Chinese AI researchers, by and large, are much more familiar with what's going on in the U.S. than vice versa. The information doesn't seem to be flowing well. U.S. researchers don't seem to know about advances in 
in China nearly as well, or at least that's my experience. Do, do you see that or, or is that not true? Yeah, well, first, um, very good observation on the, the, the Chinese uh, environment creating some advantage. Another thing to add to that is China is actually behind in many areas, which gives AI a chance because the leapfrog is bigger, right? So China didn't have a lot of credit cards. So mobile payment was a bigger leap because it was a huge advantage compared to cash and a smaller advantage compared to credit cards. So it's harder to adopt here because credit cards are very heavily entrenched. Similarly, American malls were the world leading way of doing offline commerce um, before China could copy that. Well, now all this AI comes about. So the Chinese retailers are saying, well, let's do retail plus AI and have the Chinese style of malls. So I think being behind also has certain uh, advantages. On your other point about the um, lack of symmetry of information, I think that is hurting the uh, U.S. I agree with you. I think in research, actually, I mean, core academic research, the information is shared. Uh, both countries have academicians who go to conferences, they read each other's papers, they cite them. That's reasonably connected. But uh, you're very much right that um, uh, a lot of the, uh, the, all the Chinese entrepreneurs really study both Silicon Valley and China. So they kind of have two teachers. You know, for a Chinese entrepreneur, uh, you know, Jack Ma is their teacher, I mean, virtually, as, as is uh, Sergey and, and Larry and Sergey. But for the American entrepreneurs, they generally view China as copycats, so it's not worthy of learning from. But in fact, uh, Chinese business models, Chinese ways in which AI is applied, I think is very much worthy of learning. And, uh, and, and hopefully, Part of the point in the book is that to open up the eyes of some American readers that it's worthwhile, even if you don't ever want to do business with China and you don't want to use them, you know, you don't, you don't you want to build a purely American company, it can't be bad to study another business model. It's like just, uh, you know, going to uh, first grade, third grade, fifth grade, skip, skipping second grade, fourth grade, and sixth grade. That can't be a good thing. I, I think a lot of it just boils down to the percentage of Chinese who speak English is vastly more than the percentage of Americans who speak Mandarin. I mean, yeah. in, in essence, I think it, it is largely a language. Then, uh, the language barrier is a, is, a, is a convenient excuse for looking elsewhere for solutions, I think. That's part of it. And uh, machine translation won't help you because the, even good machine translation, what they translate is not very readable. So that's why uh, people should read my book, because it's written in one of my two native languages, and, and it's hopefully easier to read. So we're running out of time uh, right now. So I will ask you one final question, and then I will invite you to close with, with whatever I haven't asked you about that you'd like to talk about. When you look forward 10 or 15 years, are AI techniques kind of the property of the human race? and? China's going to make advances and, and, and we're going to learn from those and they'll be promulgated and the U.S. will make advances and then Israel and the Great Britain and, and all the others. I mean, is it really a global community or, or is it the case that nationalism and business practices mean that people will lock their algorithms, their data behind, you know, there'll be trade secrets and they'll protect them, uh, you know, ferociously and will never really have kind of uh, the technology widely shared? Uh, 
I think there will be a great deal of sharing. Uh, sharing by the AI academics are natural. Uh, I remember when I did my PhD thesis, many people questioned how could the results be so good. So my advisor says, just share your source code and share your data. And now we see a lot of people doing that because AI is one of the few sciences where results are replicable if you implement the algorithms uh, faithfully and have the same data sets. So, so given that, um, it, it has led to a group of uh, researchers who have been very open, willing, transparent, helpful in sharing. So I think that will continue. Um, there will be some exceptions, you know, large companies, uh, a Google or a Tencent might choose to protect some things within its firewall or, uh, or uh, apply for a patent to protect something, which is understandable. But I think most, mostly it will be sharing. Similarly, I think uh, good practices will be shared, you know, to the extent, like you said, if new AI-created jobs are created in China, well, someone in the U.S. will create those jobs. Hopefully, if someone um, comes up with a new way to deal with AI-induced uh, displacement, like I said, well, another country will learn that too. Um, maybe one country will come up with a good way to protect data privacy or a good way to fight um, data security, and that will be learned somewhere too. So I, I, I think there will be uh, uh, increasing amount of sharing at individualistic level. Uh, it's hard to predict whether the you know, political nature of each government will choose to be more or less nationalistic. They're certainly not going in that direction now, but I hope, I hope that will change, but I, I'm not an expert. So I've, I've imposed on your time enough already. Is there a closing message you have about your book, about your work that you would like to share with my listeners? Sure. I think this uh, book, AI Superpowers, is uh, really uh, three books in one. Uh, first, talking about why China has emerged. And different from when you read in media, there are things that are scrappy and maybe frowned upon, but there are also a lot of things that are worthy of respect and learning from. Uh, the second is that uh, I think with U.S. and China both driving AI forward, it creates a lot of opportunities, but also a lot of challenges. And we can overcome challenges if we work together. And then the third is that sharing, I share a lot of personal stories, uh, including um, my own illness, uh, my own facing, uh, my, my mortality, having had cancer and having overcome it, but then looking back, realizing that uh, we need to look differently at work. Um, displacement of work is not a horrible monster. Ultimately, it might be something we'll be very appreciative because there are a lot of things in life that are more precious than working. That's a wonderful place to leave it, Dr. Lee. I want to thank you so much. This has been, um, this has been so informative uh, for me, and I want to thank you for taking the time. Thank you. Thanks a lot. If you enjoyed this podcast, we recommend you also tune in to the AI podcast produced by our friends at Dell EMC and Intel, using technology to solve some of the toughest challenges on the planet. The AI podcast is available online through iTunes, Google Play Music, and SoundCloud.